Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Everyone, John Wertheim here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated slash Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. Our guest this week, Danielle Collins. Who is Danielle Collins? She is now a top 50 player. She also shoots down tennis myths. She is not the product of a country club. In fact, she speaks about the fact that she played at public parks and is the first member of her family to graduate from college. That's something else. She is a college tennis player who... Played all four years at UVA, graduated, and now has gone on to success, shooting down the myth that college tennis stagnates growth and development as a tennis player. Um, She also, at age 24, has come into her own. The notion that players are what they are, not so. She started the year well outside the top 100, and here we are in mid-April. She is top 50 and may well be seeded at majors by uh, by midsummer. Anyway, uh, very nice conversation, and we talk about uh, the transition from college tennis to the pro game, the importance of uh, mental health and sports psychology. Very candid conversation. Um, enjoyed this one a lot. Daniel Collins, how you doing? Where are you? Um, I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina, visiting my boyfriend. Oh, good. So uh, a well-deserved week off. Yeah. <laughs> Where's your where's your uh, where's where's your next event? Um, I'm going to be playing in Madrid. Um, I think it starts the second week of May. I'm thinking your schedule has probably uh, changed a bit these last few months. Yeah, it's changed a lot. Do you do you uh, you have any idea where you were supposed to have uh, played besides Madrid uh, before you went on this this rankings binge? Yeah, I was going to play some of the ITF Pro Circuit events that were. Uh, that actually started, I think, um, yesterday, one of them in Indian Harbor Beach, and then there's another one next week in Dothan, Alabama, and then another one in Charlottesville, um, where I went to school, um, and then Charleston. Um, but at this point, um, 
going to try to focus on playing the bigger events. I was going to say, that's, that's your old life. Sure, I have my best performances in, in those. This, this reminds me of like a band that used to play, uh, you know, amphitheaters and state fairs, and now they're uh, now they're now they're in the big time. <laughs> what? Um, yeah, that's a good way to put it. What's gotten in you? What? Uh, how do you explain this? You know, I don't know. I think um, I think experience is the biggest thing. Um, I've told a lot of people that over and over. I think um, you know, I before I was winning a lot of matches, and I was performing well in smaller tournaments um it just takes a while to be able to play in the big events and to be able to kind of get your foot in the door and and play against bigger faces and when you do um it's a really big deal when you have wins over people um in the top 10 or the top 15 or the top 20 and and you're ranked you know 100 or or maybe below that it's a big deal so um you know, I think that's the biggest thing is I've just gotten more experience under my belt. and Now I'm playing in the bigger tournaments, so I'm having more opportunities to get wins over bigger players. If we were scripting this out as a movie, there there would be one match or there would be one sort of hinge point moment where she overcomes her doubts or she wins a tight match and now uh, the momentum starts. You, you look back over the last few months, was, was there one moment or was this more of an accumulation? Um, I think it's more of an accumulation, but if I had to narrow it down to one match, I'd say when I played Taylor Taupin, the first round of Indian Wells, it really wasn't looking good for me. I was down, I think, a set, um, and I was down in the second set um, for a good amount of time as well, and and it seems like that match was slipping away from me, but um, I was able to come back and figure out what I needed to do, and, and... I had some great wins after winning that match, and that was a great one as well. So, what? Uh, how'd you get into the sport? What do you, What do your folks do? Um, my mom is a preschool teacher, and my dad is a landscaper. So, my dad um, used to play in leagues, and and he was actually pretty good. And so, um, he got me into the sport. Um, he tried to get me into some other things like swimming and soccer and. But those didn't click. Tennis was was definitely my calling. <laughs> Why is that? Um, I think <laughs> I think with swimming, being in a pool for five hours every day wasn't something that I wanted <laughs> to do. And running around a soccer field <laughs> with a bunch of girls was was pretty tedious. And I liked tennis because of the social aspect. I liked being able to like go play matches and talk to people and. Um, you know, I like the outfits. Um, tennis was, I don't know, it's just a little bit more creative for me, I think. It's its funny because some people say, you know, I, I love tennis because I want it all on me and I love the individual sport and I can, it's, it's, it's my glory and it's my blame. And tennis loses people because, hey, I want to be on a team and I miss being part of the social fabric. It, it seems like you at, at college as well, you sort of split the difference a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I I love the individual aspect of playing tennis um, and being accountable. And I'm very independent and responsible, so it's right up my alley. But when I was in college, I also loved competing on a team. Um, those were some of the best uh, years of my life. And looking back on, you know, winning like the ACC championship twice with my team and uh, having, you know, great matches in the NCAA tournament and, and 
having good runs there. Um, you know, those are so special. So I like how when you get to the college level, you get you can be on a team if you want to be on a team. I was going to say you're you're going to get the John Isner treatment, and you're you're being propped up as uh, a great great advertisement for college tennis. I'm, I'm guessing you're okay with that. No regrets. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I had such a great experience. If I can share that with other people, uh, I think it's only a, a only a positive. Did did you uh, did you have a lot of deliberation after winning your first NCAA title? I mean, were you, were you thinking about going pro, or did you always have in your mind to play all four years? Um, honestly, I I really had it in my mind to play um, all four years. I think there was maybe like a thought of turning pro after I took the first set off of Halep in the U.S. Open. Uh, but um, other than that, I mean, I, I knew, you know, I, I wanted to I wanted to graduate from college. You know, neither, neither my parents um, graduated from college, and it was something that was really special to our family. So, Yeah, what did that yeah, – I think you, you mentioned that when we, we spoke um, for Tennis Channel at Indian Wells, and you, you mentioned that as well. What, what, what did that mean for you, being the first college graduate in your family? Um, I mean, you know, it, it's something I feel like in today's world, like education is like such a privilege, especially higher education. Um, and you know, I got to go to a really prestigious school and, um, I got an opportunity that maybe my parents didn't get to have. And I'm just really grateful, um, for that experience and to be able to have this, you know, this behind me and under my belt, um, I can go out of tennis court too, having a lot more freedom, knowing that um, I can always do something else besides tennis, um, and I'm more than just a tennis player. Uh, and I know that's something that's that's so special to my my parents, and I know they're very proud of me. So, p- play this out with me. It's it always seems to me that could cut one of two ways when you start a pro career, right? On, on the one hand, it must be this great relief you know this this sort of pressure valve knowing hey listen if this doesn't work out i've got a uva degree to fall back on but i also wonder if that does not instill in you the desperation i don't say desperation but you know the the urgency that maybe other players have how how do you sort of use this um i don't want to say safety net but how, how do you use this degree as a pressure relief and not um something that can make you maybe more comfortable than other players that, that, I, I said that really poorly, but did that make any sense? No, no, that makes total sense. Um, no, I mean, I think because I've always wanted to be a professional tennis player, and even though I didn't turn pro when I was like 14, 15, and I went the college route, I still think I have a lot of urgency. I've always been an extremely hard worker, and my motto's always been, like, nobody's going to outwork me. Um, when I'm at home, I'm on the tennis court twice a day for hours and hours and I'm in the gym and I'm doing all of the things that sometimes people might not want to do. Um, and so I think that the urgency has always been there. And I've, even when I was in college, I was doing everything that I could every single day. Um, and, you know, I think if maybe people don't have the same work ethic as me, they might use that as, you know, Oh, okay. Well, I went to college. So, you know, I don't have to maybe <laughs> worry about being like a top, a top and a real player. But for me, I'm so motivated and driven. Um, I don't think that's a factor. And you, you were able to avoid these moments where you're in, you know, 
I'll make up a name. You know, you're you're in Uruguay and you're you're playing low level events and you're saying, "My gosh, I'm 23 years old and I've got college teammates who are in the real world having conventional lives. What what the hell am I doing here?" Yeah, I mean, I think everybody experiences that at some point, honestly. But I think the biggest thing is like you have to put everything into perspective. There's so many people that would want to be in that situation and get an opportunity to travel around the world. And even though you might not be competing, you know, in a Grand Slam, you're still getting an experience that so many people would love to have. And so I think putting into perspective is putting things into perspective is one of the biggest things and and being positive and and not getting into that mindset of oh well I could be doing this but I you know maybe I should be doing this yeah I mean you can't really live your life that way you kind of have to be in the moment and value everything and all of the experiences that you have I I can't tell you how often themes like that come up talking to players and it's so it's always remarkable to me how seldom the conversation is about you know forehands and backhands and adding dimensions to my game and developing a better kick serve. It's always about handling situations mentally. Some of them are matched, you know, some of them four all in the third set situations or breaking and getting broken back situations, but so many more are just sort of the macro situations, the ups and downs of a career mm-hmm. and travel and managing sort of relationships from afar. What can we do? I mean, what, what sort of, I, I guess what, what can be done to, facilitate that i mean it's, it seems like that's something do you just have to discover that yourself or can you sort of build in support teams and training to help with that um you know i think it's really good to have i think it's it's crucial to have good people around you that are kind of keeping your head on straight um because I think one of the biggest favors you can do for yourself is to have a positive attitude and even on bad days, try to find something positive um, instead of blaming um, situations that are non-tennis related uh, to the fact of why you lost. Um, I think everybody has the tendency of doing that. I certainly have. But I think the biggest thing is like you have to be real with yourself. And sometimes I think it's easy when you lose a match or a close match to say, oh, well, you know, I was tired from the last tournament and maybe, um, you know, I was a little jet lagged, but you're not really going to get much out of doing that. So for me, I, you know, with my coaches, we try to be really real about what's actually happening um, and not waste our energy on things that we can't control. So um, I don't know. I think, for me, when I was in college, one of the biggest things that helped my game was I had an awesome sports psychologist that I worked with a couple times a week, and I think he totally changed my mindset on the court. I think he really helped me with different ways to look at different situations or stressful situations and really learn how to um, navigate through things when not everything was perfect. Was that through UVA or was that private? That was through UVA, yeah. Can you take us inside there? I mean, I think mental training and mental illness and mental health is something that's gradually being demystified in sports. They're probably still a little bit behind the times. Um, I was talking to someone who said I I have to call him a performance coach because if I call it a a sports psychologist, you you never know what teammates and coaches uh, are going to give me what kind of looks. Can, Can you 
take yeah. us inside a set? I mean, be as specific or as not specific as you want to be and you're comfortable with, but can, can you sort of take us inside a session? What is that like when an athlete says, I work with a sports psychologist? Yeah, I mean, I think you can talk about a lot of different things with a sports psychologist. Um, I'll try to give you an example. Um, you know, I think sometimes, um, like in a situation maybe where, you know, you're kind of finding yourself in matches following a similar pattern. Um, there was a time, one time when I had a couple matches and for some reason it was like I couldn't uh, visualize myself uh, doing the proper thing that I wanted to on a certain shot. And I was almost thinking about doing it the wrong way because I was paranoid about it. And I think your, your mind can kind of drift into that negativity sometimes. And so my sports psychologist gave me a uh, pretty good advice by saying, come on, like, what are you, like, would you bet on yourself to make that match or to make that shot, uh, you know, eight out of 10 times. And I'm like, yeah, I would. And he's like, okay, so why are you, you know, having this negative thought of, you know, missing the shot? Well, I don't know, you know? And so then he kind of gives you like a tactic of how to think about it in a more positive light and how to, you know, do different breathing techniques and to slow down the mash if it's kind of, uh, if you feel like you're being rushed. And I don't know if that's a more specific example, but, um, that's kind of the different areas a sports psychologist can kind of help in is they can kind of just give you different tactics to work through mental things that might be um, a barrier or preventing you from performing at your best. And you're remembering these exchanges and these conversations when you're on the court. Yeah, um, because sometimes, you know, you might have a moment where that that comes up in your head and and then you think back to what you were working on with your – sports psychologist or um, coach, you know, and and you try to apply those things. I think to another, I think one of the biggest things that I've learned that sports psychologists really like to work on is taking time between points and, and breathing. And, and so I remember a lot of that stuff during my matches and I try to make sure that I'm applying that in the important moments. Do you you still work with a sports psychologist? Um, I do, but not as consistently because it's a little bit hard when you're on the road um, just because, you know, you're you're not there to see the person like as frequently. So usually um, if there are mental challenges that arise, I try to work them out with my coach. But when I'm at home, I do I, I will see a sports psychologist periodically, but not nearly as much as when I was at UVA because um, it was more readily available when I was at school. Now I'm on the road like three weeks out of the month, so it's just hard to be able to meet with somebody consistently. I, I mean, I guess this goes back to my question before, that uh, you know, t- you, you talk to players and it's discussion very quickly becomes about confidence and happiness level and I'm, I'm pleased with myself and I'm achieving my ambitions. It's so seldom about, boy, I'm really hitting my second serve to the spots where uh, – where I want to it's 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 so seldom about the physical act of hitting the ball yeah I mean I think it could I you know I think everybody could benefit from probably working with a sports psychologist and making sure they have the right team around them so that you know because especially when you're getting interviewed I think you do want to 
focus on the forehands and backhands and maybe not the uh, personal, um, emotional side of things. <laughs> uh, so I, I got an email a few weeks ago from someone who, hey, keep an eye on Danielle Collins. She's doing amazing. And the, the gentleman mentioned that um, he was one of your sponsors. And I guess he had taken uh, a, a stake a stake in your career. H- how does that work? Yeah, so um, Marty actually saw me playing in the Connecticut Open um, a couple, or almost two years ago, not this past year, but the year before. And um, we had chatted, and he told me he was interested in helping me with my tennis and um, offering some financial assistance. And uh, we met at the U.S. Open with my mom, and um, we had some time to sit down and talk. And um, he's been such an active uh, figure in my life ever since. Um, I talk to him every single day. He's been awesome. Um, you know, he really took a lot of financial pressure off of me by helping me. And um, he's really been incredible. I mean, I think one of the biggest things when you're getting started on the pro tour, if your family doesn't have money, is you have to have some type of financial support. And um, he was one of the first uh you know, figures before Oracle, the Oracle award I, I received um, to step up. And it's very rare that, you know, somebody like Marty will actually come to you. Usually you have to go out and kind of market yourself and try to find somebody and that will help you. And um, really it was a godsend because um, I, I, since meeting with Marty um, that day in New York, I have not had to worry about um, or stress about finances. He's been um, super helpful to me um, with planning and all sorts of things. So, um, he, yeah, it's it's really been a godsend. And this is, I mean, is this like a venture capitalist? I mean, is he essentially taking a stake in your career? Like, does he? Can you repeat that again? Yeah, I, it's it's. Uh, you know, I'm remind. I remember. Um, it was, I think it was 10 years ago, actually, when Anna Ivanovich won the French Open, right? And mm-hmm. at one point she said, it was just sort of an uh, offhand remark, she said, you know, now I, I'm going to pay off my backer, and, and now I'm, I'm sort of in a new financial position. And I think a lot of people were surprised to knew this relationship existed, that, that somebody had essentially, it sounds fairly similar, someone had fronted her money and enabled her to play and travel and not worry about financing. And I think he had sort of taken like an equity stake in her career, essentially. Um, d- does your backer have a sort of a financial stake, like a venture capitalist in, in your sports career? I think, no. I think people would be really interested no. to hear. He made that very clear from the beginning. Um, when I first met Marty, he made it very clear that he is just very passionate about tennis and his family loves watching tennis and they want to help tennis players any way that they can. And um, he doesn't really have any incentive to uh, make money off of me. Um, that's for sure. So I don't think he needs to. And um, he just wants to help and he wants to see, um, you know, players like myself do well. And, and um, he's really giving back. Man, what a, what a godsend not to have to uh, yeah. worry about economizing and taking red eyes because you'll save a night of a hotel and, and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Though, you know, even though I had his support and then Oracle support, it's crazy how fast, um, like just throughout the year, how fast money goes when you're traveling every single week and you're having to pay for hotels and your coach's hotel and 
Um, and so, you know, we actually did have to work with a little bit of a budget, but I think it was good because it's, it's really taught. He's really helped me learn how to like manage my money and, um, you know, just find balance. I imagine this year you've had to pay quite a bit in change fees for, uh, for, for flights and departures that are longer than you uh, had anticipated staying at tournaments sometimes? Honestly, no. Normally, we don't um, we don't make return flights until we're done with the tournament. Oh, is that like right? Having to about, yeah, I don't like have to think about, oh, I need to make this flight or what are we going to do about changing the flight? You know, it's just better to worry about that once you're done with the tournament. So now you're uh, you're you're at a new phase in your career. First off, how, how are you on clay? Um, I like playing on clay. You know, I grew up in Florida, and there's tons of clay courts there. And um, I a good portion of my junior career played maybe more on clay than hard. And so I'm looking forward to getting back on the clay. I had a good um, clay court season last year, and uh, did some well in some 60ks and 25ks. And um, I really like playing on clay did, did you watch the masters by any chance do i watch my Masters? no no did, did you watch the masters the golf tournament uh over the weekend by oh. any chance um a little bit with my boyfriend i don't know a ton about golf um but my boyfriend does so so that was my uh the, the story the guy who won is is estranged from his family but there was a lot of talk during the last round about family relations and what must it be like for parents to watch their kids playing in these events. I'm curious, especially sort of given how you came to tennis, what, what do your folks make of this? I mean, when they're, they're watching their daughter oh, beat I Venus think, Williams, what's that like for them? Oh, I think they're just so excited. Um, you know, I'm, I have, I mean, most people I feel like start having big wins when they're like 18, 19, 20, because, you know, they turned pro when they were like 14 or 15. And so I went the college route. So it took a little bit, you know, I took a little bit of a different path and, you know, I'm just starting my career at 22 and 23 years old. So, um, you know, they're just really excited for this, um, for this time in my life. And it was exciting. They were, um, that they were able to watch me in person beat Venus. They were able to come to that match and a couple other matches. So they're very proud that's for sure. So here's a here's a quote that you gave uh, our friend Courtney in Indian Wells. I'd love to get myself in the top hundred and play the main draw of every slam. That was that was like six weeks ago. You're uh, as, yeah. as we talk. You are uh, you are a top fifty player. Um, I mean, I, I I hate the question sort of what are your goals, but how do you sort of shift expectation? Where six weeks ago you were talking about getting in the top hundred, now you're in the top. 50 and you know honestly not defending a whole lot you you could be seated at majors I mean how, how do you readjust your your ambitions now yeah I, I definitely think there's going to be an adjustment to be made because um at the beginning of the year my goal was to break the top 100 and I did that pretty quickly in the season so you know now I think in terms of outcome goals I want to continue to make baby steps moving forward and I think that's what's it's going to take hopefully I can um, soon be in the top 40 and then hopefully in the top 30 and the top 20 and and so on and so um, but aside from that I think there's things within my game that I still have room to improve and that's great because I know that if I can improve certain areas of my game I know I can definitely uh, get myself um, even higher than where I'm at now 
All right, what a player I, I always give give us one example. I mean, is that um again, is is this concrete or abstract? When when players say that, which you hear a lot in in this sport, right? There's there's still parts of my game that I can work on. Is yeah. that uh is, is that brushing the tennis ball or or is that handling situations? Well, you know, I think as tennis players, we don't like to give too many uh pieces sure, sure. of the puzzle away. Sure. Um but I think one thing I every player can relate to is I think everybody can improve their serve, and I know that I can improve my serve and, and maybe uh, establish a higher first serve percentage in matches and get more three points off the, the first serve. And so I know if I can do that, uh, I could definitely move up and, and, uh, and, and improve my ranking. All right, last question. I'm 18 years old, I'm 17 years old, and I'm on the fence – do I give this college thing a go and I worry about my game might stagnate or even decline? Um, I may lose some money. There's there's a nice agency that's going to give me a, a guarantee. Or do I take this college scholarship and have fun like an 18-year-old? Uh, make, make, you, you speak not only from experience having been to college, you're a college graduate. Make Sell, sell me on college. Yeah, you know, I for me, I had such a great college experience. It's easy for me to sell somebody on it. Um, tennis is a really expensive sport. Um, when you go to college, you not only have two coaches that you get to work with, you have a physio that's paid for, you have a sports psychologist, you have a nutritionist, you have a strength and conditioning coach. Um, all of these things that are taken care of, all of your travel expenses, all of your tournaments are covered. Um, and aside from that, even if you go to school for just one year, you can turn pro and you have a very good chance of being able to go back to school and finishing your degree um, more easily than if you didn't go to college that first year and you just decided to turn pro. So for me, I think you go to college. I think you definitely go to college and you put yourself in a situation where you're on a team and you get to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself and you take it. I love what you said also about uh, how having a college degree is is a release of pressure, and uh, you've m- mentally you got to a place where you could frame it in a way so that you don't say, "What am I doing here? My friends are having a great life," but you use that to your advantage professionally. Um, this yeah. was great. This is great. You uh, you you seem awfully level headed. Uh, you represent college tennis well. You're now in the top fifty. Um, Good luck on good luck on the clay, and uh, we'll see you at the French Open. All right, I'll see you there. All right, thanks to Danielle Collins. Good conversation. That's the player to root for right there. I was especially interested in um, her talking about mental health and sports psychology, which I still feel uh, is in some ways a bit of a third rail in sports and ought not to be. Um, that was great, was it not? Producer Jamie Lasanti, who I also thank. It was great. I enjoyed uh, listening to her, and I also enjoyed the mental coaching and mental performance side of it. I just read a book and just wrote something for the mag this week about uh, Bob Tewksbury, and he is a mental performance coach for the San Francisco Giants, and he wrote this whole book about how he kind of helps players in that field and what he does specifically, and it's a very interesting world. I, I always think sports, I mean, sports, I think, is behind the times in terms of uh, 
mental health and psychology in general. I think there's still a bit of a stigma. Players don't want to be labeled head cases, and there's whole sort of masculine testosterone bullshit myths about uh, what it means to be strong. But I would, I would think that in an individual sport especially, where you don't have to concern yourself with teammates giving you funny looks or coaches questioning your toughness, I would think an individual sport like tennis would be especially accommodating to players. Um, and it's, it's what I said before. You, you talk to players, and it's always about – you read, read press conference transcripts, and it's seldom about, oh, I was, wasn't hitting uh, – I wasn't hitting my spots when I set up for my backhand. It's always about how I was feeling and what my confidence level was. And going into this tournament, I felt like I had momentum and I need to figure out my groove. I mean, Novak Djokovic's conversation is not about the way he's striking a tennis ball. Um, it kind of only makes sense that a player would seek to maximize uh, mental health. And sports psychology is obviously part of that. She gave specific examples, but you asked, like, what what do they actually do or what actually happens in that coaching moment, per se, or when you sit down and have that conversation? And most of the time, as she sort of explained, it's it's really simple as the person talking you through, okay, what happened in that match? What happened in this moment? What were you thinking during that time? And then taking that and pivoting and saying, okay, how can we change this? How can we alter your thinking so that next time you do differently when you're actually doing the action? But it's really obviously takes a qualified and you know educated person to, to do that, someone who's educated in that field. But it's, it's pretty simple when it comes down to it. I mean, it's really just about someone going back through what they're doing and making sure that they're on the right, you know, have the right attitude about it. I, I think I find everything very interesting in that whole world. I talked to uh, a sports psychologist who works with PGA golfers, and he had all sorts of specifics. And a bad, a negative thought in your head is like a leaf, and you need to envision the leaf in a stream floating downstream so you can't see it anymore. And I talked to another sports psychologist who works with uh, with NBA players, also I think with two tennis players as well. But um, he said it's never, it's it's always abstract. It's never about performance. It's always about how you're feeling about yourself. And we don't talk about sports specific at all so yeah. those, those were two fairly different approaches but um no i think i think sports is is catching up you were a college athlete did you ever have the i i was and you i avail didn't. yourself to sports no. psychology i feel like i should have because i in talking with tewksbury one of the things he uh he said was paralysis by analysis which for me that really like struck with me because he he said you know i hear a lot of players all the time say I just want to stop thinking and just go out there and play, right? right we hear right. that all the time. It's just like, you know, cut no your head off my thought. Exactly. yeah, and just go out there. And for me, that was always something that, like, you know, my parents would just, you know, just go out there and play. Or, you know, your coach is like, just go out there and have fun. And, like, you're sitting there as the player and going, how the hell do I do that when, you know, I have to think about the X's and O's that we just went over and everything I did in practice and all of these different things that, that come into play in terms of actually – performing what you need to do and it's really hard to separate the two and I think I really would have benefited if someone walked me through whatever they needed to do but walked me through that process to try and help um I I find it you know they they do breathing exercises and you know some of the guys listen to like audio tapes that have like you said sort of imagery things that relate to what they do when they're actually on the field or on the court or on the mound whatever it is um it's all very interesting that always bothers me. Yet another, this is a, a pet peeve of mine, but these, the coaching breaks, the WTA on-court coaching, and the coaches come out there, and again, it's, it's always 
the losing player, so the vision, the visuals of a player in distress, not someone triumphing, and they say, don't overthink, play your game, just just play your game is uh, the most popular piece of advice. And you want to say, well, A, what does that mean? And B, isn't part of my game all the preparation we've been done? I mean, this isn't right. just, you know, the scouting you know, the player. See ball, what hit it, ball, exactly. What are their tendencies? All the, the breathing yeah. and the scouting. That. <laughs> that's all part of what my game is. So you're essentially negating what we've been uh, doing. Um, anyway, all right, we won't get on a on-court coaching riff. <laughs> the only other quick question I want to throw at you is uh, someone sent me a, a funny note. They said, David Ferrer beat Dave Haggerty this weekend. And what they meant by that was uh, David Ferrer had great Davis Cup heroics. Dave Haggerty is the head of the ITF who has put forth a bold proposal. We had him on the podcast um, last month. And uh, a bold proposal to really change and reshape and redefine Davis Cup and have it be a uh, a sort of one-week extravaganza at one site, everybody playing together. And uh, the notion was that David Ferrer had these heroics. There was a very engaged crowd. It was a home-and-away tie. It was sort of conventional Davis Cup at its finest. And that as this proposal by Dave Haggerty goes to vote in a few months, uh, David Ferrer may have dealt it a, a serious, if not mortal, blow, reminding us why Davis Cup is so special. Any uh, any Davis Cup thoughts coming off a, um, a Davis Cup weekend? His sort of triumph and all that did remind us why, like you said, Davis Cup has this appeal in its current form. That's oversimplifying a bit to say David Ferrer versus David Haggerty, but uh, I think, I hope that it doesn't lose that appeal. I hope that, we sort of talked about this on when we spoke with Haggerty, but I hope that it has some sort of, if they do go to that World Cup style, it does bring along the World Cup following that World Cup soccer has where you know people are willing to travel for their country and they you know it doesn't really matter where that you know it could be in the middle of Russia but there's going to be fans there representing you know their their country and their players and um, sort of bring that vibe that we sort of saw uh, this weekend. I was just in Europe last week and I think sometimes we uh don't fully appreciate the condensed landmass and the short distances and the great transportation, rail and uh, and cheap air. If you're in Berlin and there's an event in London, that's the equivalent of uh, you know New York and Cleveland. I mean, you can you get from Berlin to London in uh, you know it's, it's an hour flight for sixty nine dollars. Why you would not hold an event like this? In Europe, where tennis's nerve center resides anyway, why you would have it instead in Asia, that makes no sense to me. I, th- I think this ITF proposal would have so much more momentum if you had this in Europe where, yes, if you're a rabid Belgian tennis fan and they're holding the event in Prague, Hop on that that's Ryan a doable Air trip. Exactly. <laughs> you take your cheap Ryanair flight or uh, you, you figure out train tables if you want to get from... Vienna to Belgrade, that's not a big ask. If you're asking me as Belgian tennis fan to get to Shenzhen or Singapore, uh, that trip probably ain't happening. It, it does seem to me that uh, Davis Cup probably needs um, an upgrade and some rethinking. At the same time, I think there are problems with this proposal. I wonder why we can't meet halfway. I think I'll be writing about that for the mailbag this week. Anyway, um, Jamie, thanks as always. Thank you for having me on. Thanks again to our guest, Danielle Collins, who is excellent and now is uh, in the top 50. Man, it's amazing. That quote she gave Courtney, our friend, about how her goal for the year was to be top 100, 
that was in early March, and here we are on whatever today is, April April 10th, and uh, she may well be seated at Wimbledon. Um, say this about tennis. You can uh, you can improve your status in a short amount of time. All right, that does it for this week. Thanks to Danielle Collins. Thanks to Jamie. Thanks to you for listening and your continued uh, guest suggestions. You can get this podcast wherever fine podcasts are sold, as Jamie likes to remind me. And I will remind you, feel free to leave a rating. Apparently that helps. And uh, we'll do it again next week. All right. Have a good week, everyone. Mm-hmm.